We're in week two of a new series, a 12-week series, Strengthen the Things That Remain. This is a phrase out of Revelation 3, when Jesus wrote to the church at Sardis. And he said to them, you guys have a name that you're alive. You have a reputation that you're alive, but you're really not. And Jesus says, wake up. Strengthen those things that remain and are about to die. I've not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Really, this whole series, it's a a 12-week series that was going to be part of a Sunday school forum. But because I wasn't going to be able to do that in the Sunday school forum, I decided I'd do it on Sunday morning. And this is is basic Christianity, really. But if we get the basics right, it'll be hard to go wrong with the other things in life. Uh, July 4th was our country's, if my math's right, 233rd birthday since that first declaration of independence. And, you know, in the States, we pride ourselves on being an independent group, independent lot. And, you know, the spirit of 1776 is sort of a spirit of independence, if you will. Some of that's really good, and some of that's really not good. And we'll talk about some of the not good this morning. This morning, instead of entertaining a spirit of independence... I want to encourage us to look at life as an opportunity to involve ourselves in slavery and to be happy about it. Uh, This morning's title is Honk If You Love Jesus. And most of you are not old enough probably to remember this. But if you're as old as me, 60s and 70s in the Jesus movement, there was a bumper sticker and a phrase that said, Honk, Phil's probably old enough for this, Honk If You Love Jesus. And it was... It was kind of an exciting time, you know, because culturally in the States, a lot of people became Christians in in those days. And there was this enthusiasm about their newfound faith in the midst of the cultural and drug revolution. There was a spiritual revolution. There was a lot of enthusiasm about that. And as part of that enthusiasm, and and it sort of sounds naive and corny today, but this bumper sticker and this slogan, honk if you love Jesus. And of course, the thought was you're tooling down the road and your bumper sticker says, You know, honk if you're a Christian, honk if you love Jesus, and somebody toots their horn. And you know, here's a fellow traveler with Christ, here's another Christian. The title is so corny that when I was talking to Dan on the phone, and I said, you know, this is really locked in in a cultural time warp here. Is there anything that would be up to date? You know, some different phrase that would communicate the same thing. And Dan's take was, Jesus is my homeboy. And and then, then we... We talked about it and decided it didn't quite communicate the same thing. So it was close and appreciated the effort, but it wasn't quite there. So it is a cultural throwback, but honk if you love Jesus is what we're talking about this morning. Um, I think to be independent has positive connotations in lots of ways, but I think in the States we've refined it to an art form that is unholy and ungodly. If you go back in Israel's history, uh, the period that's called the Judges, so if you read the Old Testament, you know, you come out of Joshua and you hit the period of the Judges. And the Judges was kind of a Wild West time in the Bible. Uh, Joshua's led them after Moses led Israel out of Egypt, and he's got them in the Promised Land. But before they get a king, there's about 400 years here where God raises up from time to time Judges. But there's a key phrase in the book of Judges that describes their time, and it's this. It says, each man did what was right 
in his own eyes. That is the key phrase in the book of Judges. Each man did what was right in his own eyes. And, and it sort of meant this. Israel's in a covenant with God, right? They, they've seen him. Their parents saw him on Sinai. They've got a covenant. They're in an agreement with God. But when he brings them into the land of the promise, they sort of do this. They say, look, look, Lord, this is the deal. Uh, we're going to do as it seems best to us. Yes, we know who you are. Yes, we're in a covenant. Yes, you've brought us in the land of the promise. But this is sort of the way it's going to work. We're going to do as we see fit. And I think in large measure, the church and we as Christians in the West, we have imported that same spirit of independence into our relationship with Christ so that we see obedience to Christ's command as an option that we may or may not exercise. We tend to do what's right in our own eyes. You know, we've talked about this before, but if you look at statistics generated by studies that compare the lives of Christians with non-Christians, no matter what this revolves or involves, sometimes even giving, there's a little bit of, of disparity there. Christians shine a little bit better than the rest of the population. But generally, studies that look at the lives of how Christians live and non-Christians live, basically there's not a dime's worth of difference. You can't describe a Christian's life, typically in the United States, by the difference in their life compared to someone who doesn't know or trust Christ. And you start saying, what does that mean? If we are Christians and we're called to follow Christ, that means Christ has certain things He wants us to do and not do, etc. And, and if we followed Him, if we obeyed Him, there would be definable, objective differences in the way we lived and the way others lived in the same culture, but there's not. So it tells you, sort of like the period of the judges, we are basically doing as we see fit. And <clears throat> I was talking to a brother from uh, Africa yesterday at a wedding reception. And he was talking about the upside of Christianity in the States. And, and my view was exactly the opposite. Uh, my view was, we are the church at Sardis. We have a reputation for life, but, but we really don't. Or we are the church at Laodicea. We've got lots of stuff. You know, we have lots of wealth. I mean, if we're going to brag in something, we've got the stuff to brag about. But we don't really have much of the life, and I'm convinced a lot of the anemic quality, the impotence of the church in the West today ties to this whole mindset of obedience is an option. We may or may not choose to exercise this spirit of independence. Think about this. If you know one prayer in the Bible, one prayer in the Bible, I'll bet, it's what we call the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer, right? In the New Testament, Jesus' followers say to him, Hey, John gave his fellows this prayer. Would you do the same for us? And so Jesus gives what we call the model prayer, not necessarily to be recited verbatim, but kind of a phrases that help us remember what, what God's priorities are. So, Our Father, the one in heaven, holy be your name. And then what does it say? Your kingdom come... Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I, I think this is ironic that Christians will recite or read or pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, when most of us, we're not doing God's will in our own life. God's will in our life is a, an option that we may or may not exercise. But we'll say the prayer... We'll lip the words about God's will in the world, but most of us, we're not living this in our own lives. But we're reciting the prayer. 
Uh, if you go back into another day in Israel's history, Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, uh, God has again led Israel out of captivity. They'd been in Babylon for 70 years because God say, uh, said, guys, you know, do it my way or else. And they did it their way and, and the or else came. God destroyed Israel, destroyed Jerusalem, took them captive in Babylon. But he kept his word, kept his promise, and he brought them back really miraculously slow. When you read books like Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll see that. So they're back. God's brought them back, kept his promise. They're in the land of promise. The city's rebuilt, Jerusalem, the temple's rebuilt. So everything should be good. But God has one point after another. He has an axe to grind with his people. And this is one of the things he says in Malachi 1, 14. God says, Cursed is the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. I know this sounds paltry, sort of, but this is the deal. Uh, God's supposed to get their first and their best. It's, it's actually required in the law. They're first and their best. But when they bring a sacrifice to God, what they're bringing are their lame animals from the flock. The ones they don't want anyway. They don't want these animals to breed. They're diseased. Whatever. So what they're bringing to God is not their first and their best. They're not obeying the law. They're bringing what's convenient. They're bringing what they don't care about anyway. And they're offering it to God as if he would be happy with it. And God says, you guys don't get it. I am the great king. I'm the fiery God of Sinai. I'm the king of the universe whom even the Gentiles know enough to fear. But you guys give me your cast-offs and the unwanted elements of your life. You bring those to me as if I would be pleased with that. And I think in general, that's sort of what we in the church do today. We say, God, yeah, I'm with you. Jesus, you're, you're my homeboy. I'm honking down the road. And I'll give you what's convenient to give you. And don't bug me, basically, about the rest. I'm too busy. I'm doing as I see fit. That's the way of it. The church tends to be the same thing today. You know, one of the dangers about teaching, and if you've taught, you know this, it's that the teacher is the one who gets the most out of the lesson. Right? So if you teach something, you, you do all the study. You, know, you speak for 30 minutes, but you've studied for 10 hours or whatever. So as I've been studying on this, and, and the issue is obedience, but this brings up the issue of disobedience as well, and it brings up the whole issue of sin. And so as I've been working through this in the last week or so, uh, one of the terms that had come to my mind was wicked, wickedness. And if you're like me, I cringe a little bit when I hear the term wicked or wickedness, if it's used anywhere around me or my life or the church or Christians. So if I hear uh, someone teaching on the radio, I'm like, man, I wish you'd use a different term because wicked sounds so harsh and so negative. And yet the truth is, as I'm studying, thinking, praying about obedience and therefore disobedience, this term wicked is coming up. I just can't get away from it. We often don't obey because we don't believe how really, really awful and sinful and wicked disobedience really is. That if we could see our disobedience the way God sees it, it would transform our view of the way we're going to live life. It'd make it a priority instead of an afterthought. 
in God's economy, you know, we kind of grade sins. And for most of us, I know you're just like me. I don't commit big sins. I commit little sins. Sometimes. Or maybe I don't say I commit little sins. Maybe I say I made a mistake. I don't even call it a sin. I made an error in judgment. A minor discrepancy. You know what I mean? That's, you know where I'm going with this. It's not that big a deal, Lord. Not that big a deal. But think about this. Go back to the Garden of Eden for just a second. Think about this. For one paltry, paltry little mistake, for a minor theft of a single piece of fruit in the Garden of Eden, and one little bite, think of God's penalty for that little mistake, that little misunderstanding there in the Garden of Eden. Before the little paltry mistake, the error in judgment, the minor discrepancy, life's good. Adam and Eve, life's good. They walk with the Lord. They eat whenever. They go wherever. Life's great. They're taken care of. One little mistake. What's God do? Kicks them out of the Garden of Eden. They're not in the place of blessing anymore. He withdraws himself. He used to walk with them. No more. They were alive to God. Now they're spiritually dead. And guess what? All their children. This is mind-boggling. Every one of their descendants, billions of people, become just like them, lost, separated from God in sin. Guys, this is for one paltry, little act of disobedience. One little mistake. One little minor discrepancy. And that's what God does. But also think of this. You know, in our minds, it's a little thing. It doesn't matter. But we never know where a thing will go, do we? Uh, on obedience or disobedience. So think of this. If Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, there'd be no sin in the world. No sin in the world if they hadn't sinned. If, if they had descendants just like them, they would have been innocent. And we'd still be in Eden. The world would be Eden today. The fruit, what resulted from their single little act of disobedience is all the sin and all the death that's ever occurred in the world since. And if that sounds like overstatement, just think of this rationally. Adam and Eve are innocent until they sin. But once they become sinners, they reproduce sinners like them. And sinners sin. So this doesn't get us away from personal responsibility. But guys, there'd be no sin in the world if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned. So... If you think of this as A producing B, as where does my single act of obedience or disobedience lead, I'm thinking this. Every act of murder traces itself back to disobedience in the Garden of Eden. Every betrayal, every act of disloyalty, every war, every rape, every theft, every hurtful word or act, you name it, every sin in the world traces itself back to one minor, little insignificant act of disobedience. Because in God's eyes, there is no insignificant sin. There is no innocent sin. There's no, it's just a bad misjudgment. Sin really is wicked. I'm wicked. We're wicked in our sin. And it makes God's grace all the more compelling and all the more amazing when we realize the vile wickedness, the absolute rottenness, if you will, of our own sinful disposition and our own singular or multiple acts 
of disobedience and the thought behind them that, Lord, I'll do as I please. I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, I'm good to go, and I'll live as I please. Uh, King Saul was the first of the kings in Israel's history, just on this point about wickedness. First king, and Saul in his own mind, when God makes him king, Saul Saul was a tall, good-looking, handsome guy. I mean, he's the kind of guy, you know, on uh, the fiction, you know, the fiction books the gals read. I don't know what we call these anyway. You know, the big, strong guys, the guy that does the butter commercial. Saul was a big, strapping, good-looking guy. Uh, but in his own eyes, he said he was small. So when God says, you're my pick for king, Saul's like, no, you don't get it. I, I'm nobody. I'm from a little un, unknown family in the little tribe of Benjamin. You don't want me. I'm, I'm not important enough. But God raises him up and makes him king. And God gives him a job to do. And I confess the job was uh, distasteful, to say the least. It was judgment. Saul was to go and wipe out a people group, the Amalekites. Just as God had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, just as Israel had been commanded to destroy Jericho, every man, woman, and child, every beast, Saul was commanded by God to be God's instrument of judgment and to wipe out the Amalekites. So Saul takes the army and he goes to obey God. But once they get there, Saul and the people sort of change their mind. The commandment was absolutely clear. You keep nothing. When this was, this was called something was devoted to destruction... God said basically that there's nothing here for you. This people, this group, this city is devoted to destruction. Don't take anything out. But they did. They obeyed as far as it pleased them to do so. But they left. They kept for themselves the best of the animals and they spared the king. Sort of the spoils of war. Now, Saul and company, they're happy. Because they sort of did what God said and they've got all this good stuff that they've, they've pulled out too. So they're going to meet Samuel to celebrate before God this great stuff that they brought back. That They're not supposed to have any of it, but, but here it is. So God has told Samuel that Saul didn't obey, and I'm done with him. He's history. And Samuel's been up all night with God in prayer because he loves Saul, and he doesn't want this for Saul. But Saul comes up and says, uh, here, here, here I am, let's celebrate Samuel says, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Saul is bringing the fruit of disobedience to God, saying, Be happy. And God is saying through Samuel, I don't care about the stuff. What I want is your obedience. I don't need the animals. I don't need the fat. I don't need the sacrifices. What I want is your heart and your obedience. But listen to this. Samuel says, God says through Samuel, rebellion is like the sin of divination. This might not, uh, for our culture today, the Jews knew there's one God and one God only. And divination is witchcraft. And to practice witchcraft was abhorrent even to most Jews. But God says rebellion, the, the failure to obey, God calls rebellion, not a mistake. And he says it's just like you're practicing witchcraft, Saul. And insubordination, the refusal to obey the authority over you, is like practicing idolatry. Same thought here. In Saul's mind, 
here's God's commandment. I obey it as far as I want. And then I ask God to be happy with what I've chosen to do. And God says, Saul, you don't get it. Your sin, it's like practicing witchcraft as far as I'm concerned. It's like bowing down to foreign idols. That's how I see your sin and your judgment. So for God, there's no little sin. There's no minor indiscrepancy. And I think it's for failure to see the weight that God puts on sin and our disobedience, disobedience being the key word this morning, that allows us to play around with it so much, and I certainly include myself here, instead of seeing it the way God sees it, so that I say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be part of that mindset. I want to obey you, Lord. I don't want to give in to wickedness. I don't want to be like Saul. This morning, I want to suggest that we treat obedience and disobedience as radically as God does, and that we begin a life of thoughtful obedience and passionate service to Christ. This is the opposite of the spirit of the age and the spirit of independence and the spirit of judges. Honk if we love Jesus. Sin is far worse than we imagine. And the death that sin brings is far more pervasive than we tend to understand. And therefore, God's grace in salvation is more amazing and freer than we tend to imagine or grasp. And last, the call to obedience and discipleship is far more radical and far more costly than we tend to think or imagine as well. This is the thing. Everything's bigger and more stark, more important than we tend to think. We muddle things up in the middle. Sin's not that big a deal, so salvation's not that big a deal. Obedience isn't that big a deal, so whether I follow Christ or not, that's not that big a deal. But the truth is everything, truthfully, is magnified. Sin's much worse than we tend to think. Salvation's much more amazing than we tend to think. And the call to obedience is far more radical than most of us are willing to entertain. Far more radical. If you read James 2, James was the original honk if you love Jesus guy. He coined the term, I think, in the first century. Uh, James 2 is a passage that it causes a lot of people trouble uh, because if you don't get clearly God's salvation is by His grace through faith in Christ, plus nothing, James 2 can appear problematic. Uh, but James was kind of a brass tacks kind of a guy, and he wanted to make sure that if you said something, you did it. So James says this in James 2. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. And show me is the key term here. Show me your faith without the works. I will show you my faith by my works. I'll show you my faith by my works. James is saying, show me the money. And honk if you say you love Jesus, if you're a Christian. Don't tell me about it. Demonstrate it. You're a Christian, you belong to Christ. It should be evident in the way you live. Honk, he says, if you love Jesus. I want to suggest a few ways that we can put feet to this thought of obedience to Christ and radical obedience. Uh, one is very specific and the others are two, two are general. The first is this. Kent mentioned the announcements of baptism. Uh, Matthew 28 says this, Go therefore, Jesus, to his disciples, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, 
the Son, and the Holy Spirit, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the, Holy, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you look in the scriptural record, and frankly, if you look around most of the history of the world or other parts of the world today, baptism for someone who's trusted Christ, it's the norm. They believe and they get baptized. They believe and they get baptized. This is not to confuse baptism with salvation. That is, that baptism in any way adds or assures or makes you saved. It doesn't. But Jesus said, if you've believed in him, you are called to be baptized. And that baptism is an indication to you and to the world that you're in a new relationship, that your old life is gone, that you're in a relationship with Christ, and you're demonstrating that for everyone to see. So, uh, I don't have my wedding ring on this morning, sorry. Uh, But if I did, I would point out my wedding ring to you and I would say, the ring doesn't make me married, but it's a symbol that I belong to that woman in the front row. And it tells everybody else around me, I'm married. Baptism is that same thing. Baptism is an indication of the new relationship you have with Christ. In the States... And this may apply to some of you, and if it does, I hope you feel genuinely convicted. We trust in Christ, and we might get baptized maybe someday. Maybe not. Christians in the States will go years. They've trusted Christ, they know they're going to heaven, and they've never bothered to get baptized. And I'm thinking, what is wrong with this picture? Baptism should be the first outward sign of obedience to Christ. And let me ask you this. If we don't take the first command seriously, why would we take any of the rest any more seriously than that one? There's no sense in it. It would just be logical if we treat baptism lightly, we'd treat any other commandment in the Scriptures lightly. But we will go years, literally, and not be baptized because we don't feel like it. Because we're not that serious about it. So, If you've trusted Christ and feel convicted, as you should, if you haven't been baptized, and you can be there at the August 2nd baptism, I would strongly encourage you to do so, to be baptized. Honk, be baptized if you love Jesus. This is another thing. Depending on when you become a Christian, if you've lived a little while, the chances are that you've brought baggage into your new life with Christ. That means ways of thinking, practices, habits, Um, And when we become a Christian, God calls us to put a lot of that stuff, the deficient, the disobedient things, away. So when I became a Christian at age 19, I had a lot of stuff to put away. And and I will confess readily, I really didn't get this whole thing about obedience. Uh, Some guys were doing their best to disciple me. I was a slow learner. I didn't get a lot of this stuff. My life was a mess for quite a while. But we are called to put away things in our life that we know are sins when we become a Christian. So, I mean, I've got my little list. You'd have your own getting drunk, sleeping around, pornography, stealing, lying, dishonoring parents, parents frustrating children through harsh parenting. I mean, you know, the list would go on and on of specifics. But when we come to Christ, there's this process of putting away old things. When we become a Christian, we are a new person. We've got a new life. We're not the same person we were before. And God says, you're to live like that new creation in Christ. Now, and that means chucking that old stuff. And again, uh, the early church was a mess 
you know, when you read those epistles, the early church was a mess. So a place like Corinth was a lot like the United States today. And there was immorality and there was drunkenness and there was gluttony. And I mean, you name it, they sin with the best of them. And Paul doesn't say you're not Christians. He doesn't threaten them with all kinds of things. He says, but you were that before, but now put that away and get on with obeying Christ. So whatever those elements are that we bring with us into that new relationship with Christ, we need to put those things away. We need to commit ourselves to radical obedience. Oftentimes, it seems to me, the reason that we have trouble in one or more areas of our life where we we keep disobeying in some area, some issue, whatever, gets down to this. We haven't settled in our own mind that we're really going to obey. So anything that comes up as an area where I could obey or I might not obey is an option. So we're like voters in the booths. We go in and we say, well, I'll choose this this time and I'll choose this next time. And this gets down to double-mindedness, to double-mindedness. Double-mindedness is a sin in the Scripture. James talks about this one also. Where we're entertaining two opposite things at the same time. And so we kind of blow around. Sometimes we obey and sometimes we don't. Whereas if I could say in my mind, once for all, I'm going to obey Christ, whatever the cost, whatever it is. If I could put the double-mindedness away and say, Lord, I'm yours. What do you want me to do? Or what do you want me not to do? What do you want me to avoid? If I could settle that once and forever, put away my spirit of independence, put away my option to disobey, and say, Lord, I'm yours, I'm committed to you, the ring's on my finger, I've been baptized, I'm honking as I go down the road, I want to honor you through obedience, life's a different matter. I don't have to think again every time, am I going to obey or not? I've already said, I'm going to obey. There's a great passage in Joshua on this. It's a good memory verse if you haven't learned it. In Joshua 24, Moses leads Israel out of Egypt. Joshua gets him into the land. And towards the tail end of his life, he looks at the nation and he's concerned because he sees double-mindedness. And he sees that they're entertaining disobedience. And he's concerned. And so he tells them, basically... And I love this. He says, guys, you're double-minded. Choose one or the other. Choose one or the other. You know, if I share Christ with somebody and they're kind of muddled and mixed and it's maybe yes, maybe no, I'm I'm thinking. Give me sort of a, a happy pagan over a muddled Christian, sort of, if this makes sense. Equivocal, sold out. I'm a happy pagan, and that's where I'm going. That's honest. It's up front. I, I appreciate that. Or I'm a Christian. I'm committed to Christ. I'm sold out. That's where I'm going. I, I love that. The commitment. Not double-minded. Not playing both sides against the middle. I'm committed. But a lot of us are double-minded. Joshua said this in chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. Fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth. Obey. Honk if you love Jesus. Put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. That's what he's telling them. Do this. But if it's disagreeable in your sight to serve Yahweh, choose for yourselves today whom you'll serve. If, if that doesn't work for you, that's fine. For you, just choose. Make up your mind. 
the gods of your fathers, which were served beyond the river, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. See, he'd settled the question. He'd settled the question. There was no option left. I know who I belong to. I know where I'm going. All those things are settled. I'm committed. I think we need to give up a spirit of independence. And we need to embrace the thoughtfulness of a slave serving a benevolent master. Jesus does say, I don't call you slaves or servants anymore. I call you friends in John's gospel. This is a different take on this, just as far as a mindset that allows us to obey. Choose to act like we live in a monarchy, the kingdom of heaven, instead of a democracy, where we're sort of choosing our own rights as we go. Winding down here, I can think of lots of reasons to honk, to obey. Just a few. God's will for your life and mine is freedom and peace and joy. And do you know that if you sin, you get death? Whatever it is, if you sin, you get death because that's what death produces. So if I sin, I sow the seeds of death and they're going to come up at some point. That's what I get. But if I obey God, I get life because that's what obedience to Christ always brings. It brings life. So one of the reasons we should be highly motivated to obey Jesus is because we get life when we do. Think of your own life. Look at the lives around you. What does sin and disobedience produce? It produces, time after time, predictably, produces death. So if we obey, we get life. That becomes our experience. Another reason to obey is when we consider that God saved us at His cost and then gives us salvation, eternal life with Him forever, that should produce thankfulness. I should obey because I'm simply thrilled and thankful what God has given me, what He's done for me, and that He paid for it, I didn't. I should obey because I'm thankful. Also, back to the Malachi, if I could see God as He is, the great King of the universe, I should want to obey because of who He is. There's no comparison. We use terms, but we can't even conceive in our mind how mighty and awesome and holy God is. So all the biblical accounts, when someone sees God, what do they do? They just fall apart. They fall down because He's awesome and holy. If we could get a glimpse of who He is, we should obey just because of who He is. The last one is this, though. We should obey Christ because we love Him. Love is the strongest motivation. Uh, You can get mileage out of fear. Fear is a good motivator, and it's a biblical motivator. You can get a certain amount of mileage out of fear. But love is the strongest and highest motivation. And we should obey Christ because we love Him. Luke 7, 47, He who is forgiven little, Jesus says, loves little. If you think you were forgiven just a little bit, there's a good chance you'll love Jesus a little bit. But if we have any sense of the weight of our own sins and we realize what we've been forgiven of, Jesus says we'll love much. We'll love Him much. That engenders obedience. And John 14, 15, If you love me, Jesus says, you'll keep my commandments. We've been freely saved through faith in Christ, but then we're called into this relationship which requires total obedience. That's the call. Discipleship costs you everything. But the beauty is you get life. There are two passages in uh, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Exodus 21.6 and Deuteronomy 15.17. Slavery is a dirty word in our culture today, but you know slavery has been a part of mankind through all of our history. And God 
in a sense, sanctioned elements of slavery in the, the culture of ancient Israel because he made provisions for it in the law, kinds of slavery anyway. One of the things was this. If an Israelite had a, a fellow Israelite or Jewish slave, they could only keep them as a slave as their servant for six years. They had to free them in the seventh year. But sometimes what would happen is this. That servant living in the master's house began to like where they lived and liked the master and liked the family, loved the master and loved the family. So that when six years came and the master said, hey, thanks, you know, thanks for the help, thanks for your work. In fact, they were actually commanded when the slave left to give them possession so that they could start out well. Sometimes the slave said this, I love my master. I love my wife and my children. I don't want to go out as a free man. This sounds really bad to us. You don't want to be free. But see, this is the deal. This slave loved the master and couldn't imagine life being any better than being under that master's roof with the master and the master's family and the family that had become family to the slave, to the servant. And that's what I think we need to picture. And for this slave, the slave would go up to a doorway and the master would take an awl. This would be no big deal for most of us, right? Get his ear pierced. And that hole through his ear was an indication to everyone around him that this slave had said, I love my master and I'm going to serve in his house forever because of that. That was honking because he loved his master, if you will. He said, this is so good, I can't imagine life being any better. And so in that sense, think about choosing to see your life as a slave. That you don't want to go out because life can't be any better than it is right where you're at with your master, the Lord Jesus. No one will treat you better than him, by the way, anyway. And his family and his table, it's the only place that's worth being ultimately. So consider this lifestyle of being a slave to Christ. The decision to obey is over. I made it. I'm committed. I've got the hole in my ear. I'm honking my horn. I'm showing the money because I love my master. I love Christ. I think if as Christians in the States today, in our culture especially, if we could get over playing around with stuff and seeing the wealth we have in Christ, we'd be at the doorway, the hole would be in the air, and our lives would be radically transformed. And people would know whether we honked or not. They're a Christian. There's something different about them. So think about a radical lifestyle of happy bondage to the Master, Jesus, who's freed us so we can serve Him forever. Thanks. Lord, we, we don't love you as we should. Thank you that we have eternity to get to know you, to see you as you are. Uh, Lord, for a guy saying something like falling in love sounds kind of squishy or mushy when you're thinking about another male figure. And yet I know the more that we get to know you, the more awesome we'll realize you are, the more holy, the more worthy. Lord, help us to catch glimpses of you by your Spirit. Help us to see you more as you are. God, help us to have done with lesser things.
with playing around, with half-hearted devotion, with second-rate offerings. Help us to give up a spirit of democracy, as it were, and embrace service in your name. Lord, help us to live a lifestyle that says to you and communicates to others that we know you, the living God, and we are happily in your service. In Jesus' name, amen.